Well, primacy of the heart is what we're going to talk about and think about together this morning. You know, week one, we talked about the creation of the heart, where really some of the questions we were trying to answer is kind of who are we? Where do we come from? How has God put us together? What does it mean to be human beings with an inner person, an outer person, inseparably interdependent in this life, only to be separated by death when the body goes into the ground, but then on the last day when the body's raised, glorified, reunited with our souls, once again, inner person, outer person, inseparably interdependent forever. And so just thought together about, okay, where did, yeah, where did we come from? How did this all come about? How, what did God do in making us? And then in the second session, we talked about devotion of the heart. We were trying to answer the question, what, what does God really want from us? Does he just want external stuff, sort of religious performance, going through the right motions? Or does he want worship from the heart, devotion from the heart, to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our inner being out through our outer being, out through all of our relationships? So creation of the heart and yeah, devotion from the heart. And then we talked about the problem of the heart, that the thing that God is seeking and wanting from us, those who worship him in spirit and truth, those who love the Lord with all of our hearts, is, is the last thing we want to give in the flesh. It's the thing we most want to restrain. We'd rather sort of climb over land and sea, as we talked about name in the Syrian, right? Like I'd, I'd rather go do some difficult thing and give that to God than just trust him from my heart. I would rather mistreat my body. I would rather go through all these steps of external religious devotion than humble myself, repent, and entrust my soul to him. And that's why the world is full of religions, full of all that external stuff. We have to ask ourselves, okay, why? Why are there so many religions where people are willing to treat their bodies severely, to restrain themselves, to restrict themselves, to live under all these kinds of laws? Well, I would argue because that's actually more appealing than to trust God. It's more appealing to go through all that stuff that I can control, all that stuff I can take credit for, all that stuff that I can feel good about and see and measure and taste and feel than believe, than give my heart over to him in faith and in repentance and in trust and in obedience. So we talked about, yeah, just the problem of the heart. Then last week we talked about the influences on the heart. I mean, we're not just ethereal spirits floating around in the cosmos, but we're actually physically embodied creatures. We're socially embedded creatures. We're spiritually embattled creatures. There's an invisible spiritual war going on around us. And there's a sovereign God who's enthroned that's working in all that, through all that, governing, authoring all that for our good and for the salvation of his people and the glory of his name. And so we talked about how, yeah, we're, all those are influential. The body's not just along for the ride. The social relationships and circumstances aren't just irrelevant. They exert real influence. They really do matter. And the spiritual battle is real and significant. So we just talked about all those different influences. What we're going to do this week is try to harmonize a little bit all those weeks we've covered so far. Like how do we take, okay, who we are, creation of the heart, okay, what God wants, devotion from the heart, what's really wrong, the problem of the heart, but then also all those influences how do we harmonize those to kind of see ourselves through the lens of scripture the way God sees us, how he explains us, so that we can begin to answer this question, why do we think, feel, and act the way that we do? There's all these influences, all these things swirling around us, 
And then all this stuff coming out of us, all of our thinking, all of our feeling, all of our relating, all of our acting. And how do we harmonize all that with scripture? How do we understand it from God's frame of reference? So consider, yeah, just a fictitious 19-year-old woman named Amanda, recently dumped by her boyfriend, goes home to binge on carbohydrates and then purges through vomiting. Social relationships for her tend to be hot and cold, all or nothing. Her mom's perfectionistic. Her dad is emotionally isolated. A teenage boy had molested her on one occasion 10 years ago. She never told anyone. She once tried using a Ouija board to make sense of life. She's a Gemini, a strong 1-9 on the Enneagram. A psychiatrist once diagnosed her with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. But she professes faith in Christ, follows Christ, but then she also reads lots of books trying to understand the source of all the anxiety that she feels, all the despair that she feels, all the anger that she feels. Or Matthew, fictitious 37-year-old man, divorced about seven years ago after a two-year marriage, thought that marriage to a woman would curb his attraction to men, but it didn't. He tries to ignore it, vows to just stay single and lonely, tends to be guarded in his relationships, though he hates to be alone. Churches do not feel safe to him, so he stays out on the periphery, though a professing Christian, plays around with porn every couple days, drinks a couple glasses of wine every night just to take the edge off and get to sleep. He's capable of 10 to 12 hour Netflix binges and Amazon binges. Though he's successful in his career as a financial planner, only child, parents really feel sorry for him and dote on him as much as they can. They want him to feel loved because they know he feels rejected in the world and so they always have a place for him at home. They always have a room ready for him if he wants to come and live with them. So how do we explain what's going on? Like with Matthew, with Amanda. And this brings us to that first main point of just the common explanation is a hodgepodge of equal forces that you, you sort of read or hear stories like that. You even reflect on your own life, which may in some ways sound familiar to some of those types of stories. And it's just this overwhelming hodgepodge of forces. And then we're in a culture that's bombarding you with explanations of why Amanda is the way she is, why Matthew is the way he is, why you are the way that you are. You know, Amanda has anorexia nervosa. It's wrapped up in this bundle of OCD under this strong one-nine personality. She's also a Gemini in late summer under a full moon. And her parents have this combination of intense control and aloof avoidance that just sort of keeps her in this washing machine of emotion that causes her to think X and feel Y and do Z. Or perhaps she let a demon in through the Ouija board and now he's kind of wrecking shop on her life. Or the trauma of abuse got sort of triggered by this boyfriend who mistreated her and that sent her into a trauma response spiral. I mean, those are all things that you're gonna feel just saturated by in the world in which we live. How do you make sense of that? How do you harmonize all that? Is it really just this hodgepodge? of these equal forces that nobody really can make sense of, it's just too mysterious, too overwhelming, or you just sort of pick one thing and make that your thing. We're in the age of trauma, where trauma has even become 
one of the explanatory forces for who you are, for why you are the way you are, for why society. So even, I feel like in every sort of decade, there's different pieces that rise to the surface that now today, that's the hot one. And right now, we're, we're in the decade of trauma where you heard all those things and I find that that's the one now that rises to the top and this is what we're gonna explain Amanda through. Or Matthew is same-sex attracted in a world that despises it, making him an outcast. Or his parents did not train him to be a real man. Or he's a sensitive guy in a culture of over-realized masculinity. Or porn is the only safe place he can go for intimacy and belonging. Or maybe he has an addiction. Sort of a biological hard wiring that makes him run to wine, to porn, to sensual pleasure. Work is stressful. He's the only child of codependent parents. He suffers from low self-esteem. Or we keep going with all the, the explanations, the hodgepodge of things that get thrown into the bucket of their lives, and, and it's hard to make sense of it. But one sort of question just begs to be answered, and that's, why do they think the way they do? Why do they feel as they do? Why do they act as they do? Why do they relate as they do? As we all know, family upbringing matters. We talked about that last week. Biochemistry matters. Peer relationships matter. Abuses endured matter. There are specific sort of idiosyncrasies colliding with their surrounding world that, that matters, that influences. But what do we prioritize? What do we focus on? How do we harmonize the pieces? Most importantly, who do we listen to? Who has the answer on this? Who actually understands people? And how we answer these kinds of questions, I think they're gonna drive and shape everything we do in response. Everything we think they need. So does Amanda and Matthew, they just need reparenting from sort of an all-wise, loving therapist? Do they just need a good class on setting relational boundaries? or to read the latest nine books on boundaries, or a program kind of to heal those nagging, broken relationships, those family relationships? Does Matthew need some medication to balance the serotonin, to think better of himself? Medication to curb the desire for alcohol? Again, those are all real things that have sort of real effects, but is that the center of it? Is that the core of it? Maybe society should change then they'd be okay. We live in an age where everybody's trying to change society. Because if society could just change, then everybody would be okay. And so again, every day we're, we're bombarded with those words from our sponsors, with campaign ads, with who's gonna fix what, the latest explanation of the human condition, what the world really needs, what we really need. So we have to ask, who brings the right view of people to the table? Like whose words are the right words for how we understand ourselves? And for us, it's gotta be God and his word. That's where we have to start. And I don't just mean like an encyclopedia of answers, I mean like a set of lenses that you wear through which you interpret everything. The word of God that actually is the filter through which you interpret how you feel, how you relate, how you think, what we orient around. So it's gonna bring us to the biblical truth that we're gonna focus on this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 
16. Well, here's the biblical truth we're going to focus on, and that is whatever rules my heart rules my life. And the Bible's going to say that about 9,000 different ways. That whatever rules my heart rules my life. It's a clear, unavoidable, freeing, painful, glorious truth that what rules your heart will rule your life, always, completely. This is Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. Do you ever feel that? Just that war inside you? That's why even when we're sharing the gospel with others or someone actually professes faith in Christ and believes and trusts, some of what we say is, okay, life's about to get a lot more complicated. Before it was actually more simple. You just had one force in you, and that was the flesh. Now you're going to have competing interests, competing forces. You're, you're going to get a new heart, but now there's a war that was outside you, now it's going to be in you for the loyalties of your heart. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. In other words, you don't need all these external rules, guidelines, mosaic law to sort of shape your world. You, you're now led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, His Word written on you. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. In other words, he thinks we don't need to think super hard about it. It doesn't take a lot to step back from our life and see the deeds of the flesh that are evident, like immorality, impurity, sensuality. I love the degrees there, right? Immorality, I think the outward expressions of immorality, impurity, sort of the desires and passions, and then sensuality and the very, very details of just wanting the senses to be pleased. Idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy. Does that unsettle you a little bit that he would put sorcery and enmity right next to each other? Because a lot of us go, oh, sorcery, I don't do that. Well, enmity, jealousy, strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and then he just tacks on at the end, and things like these. Anything like that. Anything that sort of fits that sort of spectrum. But notice how that's not just external behavior. Those are like inner heart desire stuff. And he's saying deeds of the flesh are evident, like jealousy. How many of us ever thought of jealousy as a deed? As something you do? Yeah, here's God saying, to him it's a deed. Because if I hate a brother or sister in my heart without cause, God... That's murderous. You know, if I lust after someone who's, yeah, a man or woman, that that's like adultery. It's not the same outward expression of it, but it's of that quality. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then here's the key contrast, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. So you see, hopefully, the contrast that these two forces, these two pressures, these two roads sort of colliding in us, the flesh, 
that wants to walk in the deeds of the flesh, the spirit that wants to walk in the spirit and produce the fruit of the spirit. And the evidence, he's saying, is clear. And really, scripture couldn't be clear that the determining factor for the moral quality of our thoughts and our emotions and our actions, our way of relating to God and to others, is the condition of our hearts. That's what he's getting at. What's ruling it? What's governing my insides is the determining factor in how I think, how I feel, how I live, how I relate. So what we'll do is focus on three aspects of this. They're connected, they overlap. But heart nature, heart content, heart orientation. When I think of just the wide range of passages that we could sort of gather together in, in buckets, like these are some of the buckets that at least makes sense to me when I see how the passages unfold. Heart nature is one piece, heart content, and heart orientation. Heart nature. That the character or nature of the heart is primary, just even in perceiving reality and in interpreting the world and relating to God and receiving truth. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. Okay, why is the gospel folly? Why was it folly to us before we were born again? Because our heart nature couldn't accept it, couldn't believe it. No way it made any kind of sense. Why not? Because of the nature of our heart. The natural person, it's folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Just that idea that, okay, the spirit has to be in me, opening my eyes, softening my heart to discern the truthfulness of the truth of God's word. And without the spirit doing that, it's folly to me. It's absurd. We'll talk about this in implications. I don't want to make us very humble toward people who don't know Christ. Very patient. Because what we're operating, the reasoning, reasoning ain't going to do it. Just the clarity of the communication isn't going to be enough. Just using the right Bible passages. The spirit has to do something in the heart of the person so that what you're saying doesn't sound ridiculous to them and foolish to them. And that's what he had to do in all of us, right? Even humility about ourselves. How did we come to believe the truth? Well, the spirit opened our eyes and ears to receive it as beautiful, as true, as glorious. We would never have accepted it without it. Now, we didn't know that at the time, right? We learned that later. We just know they, they, they communicated the gospel, it made sense, we believed it, and we thought, okay, I did it. And then as the years go on and reading the Bible, we realize, oh, wait a minute. There's all this stuff the Spirit did that I didn't even know. He opened my eyes to see The natural person refers to the unregenerate, not born again person. And because of that condition of the heart, that heart nature, there's just, there's a whole way that reality is seen, that life is interpreted through, that is altogether different than the way the person with a new heart nature is going to see and receive it all. John 8, verse 43, this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees, says, why do you not understand what I say? Here's a simple question, right? Why don't you understand what I'm saying? Well, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. 
Okay, why not? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. There's this explanation. Why can't you understand what I'm saying to you? Well, because you can't bear to hear my word. This is God in the flesh speaking face to face with these men. And they can't bear what he's saying. They can't bear it because of their, the nature of their heart. He's saying, okay, you're of your father, the devil. That's your nature. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and a father of lies. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. That's hard to hear. Those are weighty kind of words that, okay, whether you're the nature of your father, the devil, or of the nature of your father who's in heaven, is gonna completely shape and determine how you receive God's words, how you interpret your life, how you put the pieces together, who you run to in trouble, who you cry out to in the worst moments, what words you trust and believe under pressure. Because something qualitatively changes when the Spirit gives us a new heart in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what it doesn't mean is when you get a new heart in Christ and you're born again, that all your troubles go away. In fact, you get a whole bunch of troubles you didn't have before. It doesn't mean all of a sudden your body isn't going to suffer or hurt or your relationships aren't going to be full of conflict. They may have more conflict. It certainly doesn't mean that the demonic war goes away. There may be more of it for you now. So all those influences may ratchet up, but it's pushing on you with a new sort of ruling nature inside of you, the very nature of Christ. And so now the way we relate to the body changes, the way we relate to physical suffering. Listen to James 1, verse 2 and through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So now when we suffer physically, suffer socially, suffer spiritually, James says we, we count it all joy. Why? Because we know the testing of our faith produces steadfastness of faith. So that's an interpretive lens that's different now. That trials come, and now rather than anger, bitterness, resentment, anxiety, fear, worry, running, it's joy. Why? Because the testing of our faith, we know, God testing our faith through trials produces a steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, how many of you want to be mature and complete, not lacking in anything? Put up your hands. All right, great. We all do, right? Therefore, James says what? Count it all joy when you face trials of any kind. Because you know that's what God will use. Whatever the trial is, the trial of any kind. Because that's what he will use to produce in you a steadfastness of faith. That's what he's going to use to grow you, to conform you to the image of Jesus. 
I mean, that's a fascinating statement that when we have a new heart nature in Christ, how we interact with suffering completely changes. How we interact with conflict and relationships, how we interact with, just how we interpret it is different. Now we go, oh, this is good for me. How quickly, how instinctively do we tend to say that when suffering comes? Oh, Lord, wow, thank you. This is so good for me. Or are we looking for somebody to blame, something to fix, some way to get rid of this, some doubt of God? There's no way this is in his hands. And yet James is saying, no, with a new heart nature, this is what God's going to use to produce in you steadfastness, maturity, completeness. And notice what he says, that you may be perfect and complete. So he's not saying, okay, right now you are. But rather with a new heart nature, you're put on a whole new road. Where now trials, sort of around that new heart nature, governed by God, with the spirit of God in you, with the word of God shaping that, is going to slowly conform you to the image of Christ. He is perfecting you. But clearly we're not there yet. That's why we need the trials. At the same time, the new heart nature will express itself through the body in a new way. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, or you do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you're not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In other words, we experience our bodies in a whole new way with a new heart nature, and now we express ourselves through our bodies in a whole new way, because we have a new heart nature. We realize, okay, our bodies are not now instruments of unrighteousness, but instruments of righteousness. That's no longer, okay, just my own. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price, and my body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, that drastically affects how we express ourselves through the body, how we interpret what's going on in the body. Even when you think about with Amanda, here's someone who at one stage abused her body, but it could be comforting for her to know that the Lord takes that very personally. Her body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that offense is not just an offense against her. It's an offense against him who purchased her body with his blood, who fills her body with the Spirit. How did God think about Israel bringing idols into the temple? Do you think that was a great idea? Or did that bring a lot of response from God, a lot of prophetic words from God, a lot of action from God. Well, how much more if somebody harms your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit? We think that if God really cared, he would stop it, right? If God really cared, he would never let it happen. As opposed to, no, if God really cares, he will ultimately judge it, but first he's gonna redeem it, consecrate it, cleanse you. You know, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, his blood, not only purchases you and cleanses you from your sins against your body, but also the sins of others against your body. Even washes you of that. We also experience our relationships with a new heart nature, which means a new perspective, a new attitude, a new faith in God. You know, in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul's talking about the thorn in the flesh that he was experiencing, some believe, okay, this, this could have been a physical ailment, a physical affliction that was besetting for him. Or it could have been a person. The thorn in the flesh was actually a person in the Corinthian church that God had allowed, that Satan had sort of strengthened and enabled to persecute him constantly. Listen to how Paul thinks about it. 
2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he'd received, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So first Paul's like, Lord, get rid of this thing. This is too much. This is too agonizing. And whatever it was, it must have been bad because Paul endured some stuff. But he said to me, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. That's his answer. Paul pled three times, Lord, take this away. This relational affliction, this thorn, this messenger of Satan that is tormenting me. That's his words. And God says, no. Why not? Well, my grace is sufficient for you. And how many of us think God's grace means no thorns? God's grace means no tormenting. God's grace means he won't allow things to happen that are afflicting me constantly. When he says, no, no, my grace means I'm with you, I'm for you, I'll strengthen you, I'll help you. I'll, my power will be perfected in you through your weakness. Here's Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Say, all right, Lord, give me two. That's what's gonna happen. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ's sin, he says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. Wow, think about it. how many of us are content with those things. And yet Paul wasn't there right away. Like God had to teach him that. God had to help him learn how to be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What he means is because when I'm weak, I'm not gonna depend on myself, I'm gonna depend on God, who is strong. When I'm overwhelmed by the things around me that I can't possibly overcome it on my own, I'm gonna be much more likely to pray, to rest, to wait, to trust in God, and that is strength for us as human beings. So you see how Paul's completely interpreting his social relationships in a different light, because of a new nature how he's gonna interpret childhood upbringing, how he's gonna interpret strife in relationships, how he's gonna interpret the things that he's facing that are sources of torment, sources of affliction, is completely different now, with not just a new heart nature, but with God teaching him along the way. So heart nature. Secondly, heart content, which is very much related to heart nature. Not only is heart nature primary, but heart content yeah, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 33. Where Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. See, there's two things in view. Heart nature's in view. What kind of tree are you? Briar or oak? Apple tree or thorn bush? But then also content, that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. 
What it means is everything you say always, completely, totally, no exceptions, comes from your heart. Everything you think, everything I think, always, completely, totally, always comes from our heart. And there could be all those influences, all those things squeezing us, all those things raising the temperature, but only what comes out of me came out of me because it was in me. That's humbling, right? And when God redeems our hearts in Christ, he fills them with good treasure. He puts new content inside us. Again, that doesn't perfect us right away. It just puts us on a whole new trajectory. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's the hope of the gospel, right? What Paul said to me, the hope of glory is Christ in you. Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Get all that content inside. Think about it. Dwell on it. Muse over it. Talk to God about it. That's, and when you get squeezed, that's what's going to come out. There's always competing content, right? The world's always wanting to put other content into us. The devil, like with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he's trying to introduce new content for them. Okay, yeah, God said that, but try this. Believe this. Trust this. So there's always a war for our souls over, okay, what content is going to control us? Whose words are going to be supreme inside of us? And that's why if you spend 10 hours on Netflix for every 10 minutes in the Bible, that will affect you. Just the sheer volume of content you're putting in. If you do 20 hours of novel reading for every 30 minutes of time actually listening to the word of God, listening to God speak, putting that content, okay, that's gonna have an effect in your heart. That's why we think education of our kids matters, right? Of just, certainly the idea of of, okay, we, we want to talk to our kids about what they're learning at school, but there's also just a volume issue that can be overwhelming of just how many hours of different kinds of ideas where, okay, it's not just math and science that are being taught anymore, but a, but a certain worldview that the scripture has just a very different worldview to offer. And so there's a war there. There's an urgency of prayerfulness even with our kids to sort of keep up this content and putting that content into them because there's competing content. Yeah, Psalm 42.10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? All day long, where is your God? Where is your God? What would cause David to doubt where God is? All the pain, right? All the affliction all the suffering, there's something that when that comes, it's like, okay, where is God? And so now you have enemies that are taunting him with that. Where's your God? Where's your God? Where's your God? So heart content. It's why, as we've talked about a few times, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We've got that well in the middle of our community, and from that well comes all the water that we drink, all the water that we water our animals with, all the water that we water our grass with, all the water we clean with. 
And do, do you also use that well as your trash dump? Like every time you get trash from your house, you just walk it out, you just dump it in your well. And that's what everybody else does. Somebody says, hey, I've got some trash, what should I do with it? Oh, I'll just throw it in the well. We don't do that, right? We guard that well. We protect that well. Because from that well comes everything that is going to water life. And God says, that's what your heart is. But also thirdly, heart orientation. Not only is heart nature primary, heart content primary, then heart orientation. This is probably one of the biggest pieces, just around whom do our hearts revolve? That before Christ, our hearts revolve around self, flesh, the opinions of others, the world, whatever it is. And then when we're given a new heart in Christ and Christ lives in us, we now have a new sort of orientation. Just think about the solar system. What if you had the power for one minute to make the earth the center of the solar system? What would happen? Some of you know, you know, you've done physics enough or some of those things enough that it would, the whole solar system would implode very quickly. You know, the earth has a certain kind of mass to it and it, the mass is not enough to hold the other planets in orbit that are smaller or keep the bigger planets or the sun out of orbit because of its size. And so the solar system works as God designed it because the sun is the most massive object in the solar system. And it has enough mass and power to actually keep the smaller planets suspended in a certain orbit and trajectory and to keep the larger planets out so it doesn't implode on it. So to actually keep things in and to keep them out. And so what happens in, yeah, when we come to Christ, when we're united to Christ, like our, now our whole solar system goes to earth, from earth-centeredness to sun-centeredness. And things start orbiting the way they should. And think about how much of our days are organized around what the sun is doing. You know, that's how, that's, I think there's an illustration there God wants us to see, that our whole calendar is oriented around the sun. Our whole calendar is oriented around how the earth travels around the sun. How much more is the Christian to be oriented around God, oriented around his word? Yeah, John 10, 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's sort of a heart orientation verse. My sheep, they, they're oriented to me. They hear me. They follow me. They take their cues from me. They think about me. They interpret life with me in the middle because I'm their shepherd and I give them eternal life. So heart oriented to hear Christ believe Christ, trust, adore, honor, obey, follow Christ and his word, it's just gonna experience all of reality in a very different way. Psalm 28, verse one, where David says, to you, O Lord, I call my rock. That's an orienting verse, my rock. I stand on you. Be not deaf to me. Lest if you're silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. You know, what a statement. Like, Lord, if you don't speak to me, if you're silent, 
I might as well die. I don't know how to function. I don't know how to live. I don't know how to be in this world without your word, without you orienting me, me being oriented around you. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. And how many of the Psalms are written with that kind of language? Me, God language. I, you language. That it's not just content the Psalms are giving us, it's an orientation that it's giving us. Here's who your life needs to revolve around. When you're in trouble, here's who you need to run to. When you're encouraged, here's who you praise and give thanks to. So, you know, in Exodus, when God appears to Moses and reveals himself at the burning bush and is talking to Moses, and now he's calling him to go back to Egypt to lead out his people, and they're going to come and worship him on that mountain. Remember what Moses' first response is? It's, no thanks. Send somebody else. There's got to be someone else to do it. And then Moses has all these objections. You remember what those objections are about? What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? Who do I tell them that you are? I don't speak well. You know, all these objections. And after every objection, what does God say? Surely what? I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to say. Who made your mouth? Who makes mouths? Who opens ears? What's interesting is this isn't just a discussion about content. This is a discussion about who's this going to be about? Moses, is this about you or me? What's Moses' answer? It's about me. (laughs) God's answer is, no, no, it's about me. No, no, Lord, it's about me. No, it's about me. And you see that pattern often through the scripture. It's not just, okay, what are you going to believe? But around whom is your life going to revolve? Who are you going to take your cues from? Who are you going to listen to? Whose power are you going to bank on? Yeah, even when a great multitude of enemy armies surrounded the people of Israel in 2 Chronicles 20, ready to annihilate them, Jehoshaphat prayed to the Lord, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but we're, we're oriented, we're looking to you, we're waiting on you. Every, our whole lives are going to revolve around you. That's determinative in life. That will shape everything. You think through how you experience the world, how you express yourself in the world, what trajectory you're on of, of change. And so there's this point four there, this myriad of mediating factors, but there's really one fundamental cause, and that's ruling orientation of the heart. What rules your heart will rule your life, whether that's the spirit of God or your flesh, whether that's the words of Christ or some other set of words, whether that's his kingdom come, his will be done, or my kingdom come, my will be done. And just because the heart orientation and the ruling orientation is, is right for us as believers doesn't mean there isn't that constant war. That's what we looked back at it right in Galatians 5. There's still a struggle. It's still a battle but he has us on a whole different kind of road. But these are the kinds of passages that help us answer that question. Why do people think, feel, and act the way that they do? What explains us truly? So then as you sit with Amanda, as you sit with Matthew, and you're ministering to them, listening to them, hearing from them, and there's this 
this, you know, this chorus of influences, this wide range of voices and ideas and explanations, you're able to say, actually, but here's the center of it. You need your heart reoriented constantly around Christ. You need heart content that is being constantly reshaped by the word of God. You need your heart and nature to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It gives direction, it, it harmonizes the pieces. So we're gonna pay attention to all that other stuff. We're gonna talk about all that other stuff, but the real gravity of where our attention is gonna be, the real gravity of where the gospel is gonna to try to do its work is not fixing all that stuff out there. Not even just fixing your body right now, but, but doing something in your heart. Let's pause there. Any questions, comments, thoughts, reflections on anything so far? Nothing, yeah. Yep, yeah. Yeah, so the question is, you know, if this is really true as believers, then why throughout the week or day to day does our understanding of who we run to, who we listen to, what we, why does it change so much? And yeah, I think that is part of the weakness that is inherent to being creatures who are being sanctified, who are being changed, who are being transformed. The physical stuff's just so convincing and compelling. The stuff that you can see and hear and taste and touch it's just so easy to, to believe and because that is what we sort of feel and sense and see. And it's, so it's hard to pause and to trust in something that God is saying when a lot of the stuff I see going on around me is very different than that. That's one piece. I think the second piece is we just forget. We're forgetful people. You know, Martin Luther was once asked, why do you preach the gospel every day and every, every time we're with you and every week. He's like, well, because you forget it every day. That was his answer, we just, we forget it. So, you know, First Peter and Second Peter, one of the words that's recurring in those epistles is the word remember. Remember, remember. Yeah, Paul, his, his letters to Timothy, especially Second Timothy, his last letter, his last letter he wrote before he dies, just the number of times he's gonna say, remember, call to mind. And so he's like, okay, Timothy, I'm not teaching you something new here. I'm telling you, remember what you've been taught. Remember what, and so why do we have the Lord's Supper? What's one reason? Remember. It's to herald, it's to proclaim, it's to remember what he's done, to celebrate what Christ has done in his body and his blood. That he knows us. He's like, okay, so I'm gonna give you these images, this bread and this wine, until I come back, you're gonna have this, so that as often as you eat this, you'll remember. His body, his blood, not your body and blood. His sacrifice, not your sacrifice. His righteousness, not your righteousness. He's the center of the gospel, not you. His works, not your works. And so, yeah, praise God. He's just, he's so patient. He's so kind. He perseveres with us as we persevere. But yeah, day after day, that's why we have to get up and eat this food. We've got to be in his word. It's not enough to sort of just... And why Jesus is going to say things in John 15, like, abide in me. 
You know, the way like a lamp abides in a wall, that's where it gets its power from, as opposed to a flashlight that has batteries. You know, sometimes we'll approach the Christian life that way. Just recharge the batteries and then go out and do your thing until it starts to wear down, then you recharge. That's not a great way to walk with Jesus. And when he says, abide in me, it's no, you stay plugged in. That lamp in the wall, because as soon as you unplug, it light's gone. The power's gone. And so we just need that constant reminding, constant reorienting. And that's some of what the church is for. It's what preaching is for. It's what discipleship is for. It's what life groups are for, right? We all need constant stirring up to reorient around Christ, to remember his words. Yes? Yeah, so regarding the, 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 the comment is just when we think about the content of the heart, that's one of the reasons why we see things like vacation Bible schools or camps where Christians gather together and just get in the word together. And, you know, we've been there, right, where you just get out somewhere in the woods for a week with a bunch of other believers and you just read the Bible, you pray, you sing, you hear pre- all those kind of things. And it's like you come back, and you're like, I'll never sin again. Like, yeah, I'm, it's a few days go by and it's oh, wait, I wasn't exactly living out in the real world then. But, but that's why you see, yeah, those sorts of times, those kinds of seasons are truly formative in us. It's also why if we just wait till crisis hits to then study God's word, it's gonna be too late so often. And so that's where we tend to have a, a reactive sort of theology that is, okay, something hits, then I go to the Bible when I'm probably already 10 feet underwater, it shows how much we do need the formative training of the word, the formative sort of believing and trusting in the word, the formative abiding with Christ, so that then when all the suffering and trial comes, you know, Psalm 32 is what gets squeezed out. Psalm 28 is then what we cry out. Yeah, so the gospel is the good news of Christ's work in redeeming us from death to life and giving us a new heart and imputing us to us his righteousness so that we now can say, okay, we have the mind of Christ. What a statement that is. Christ in us, Christ filling us, the one who never sinned, the one who always in response to his body, to his relationships, to his world, was oriented around the Father. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest, Christ, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, just our physical, social, spiritual weaknesses. He can sympathize, and by spiritual, I don't mean in his own heart, I mean like demonic pressures, vulnerabilities. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the real hope of the gospel isn't that in all your temptations you're without sin. The hope is in all his temptations he was always without sin. Therefore, he could be not just a sympathetic high priest, but actually give an atonement for us, offer up his body and blood in a way that was satisfying to the Father. But bodily weakness, social oppression, demonic temptation, Jesus experienced all of that, yet without for a single millisecond caving to it, which I would agree with C.S. Lewis, who says that means that Jesus has known temptation to a further extent than any of us ever have. 
Because if you think about when we're tempted and if you resist temptation, what happens to the temptation? Does it just go away? What happens? It gets stronger often. And then you resist more and it gets stronger. At some point, sure, by God's mercy, it may break. But sometimes we're the ones that break and cave to it. Well, Jesus never caved to temptation ever. That means he's seen the force of temptation to a further extent than anyone ever has. And yet never gave and never caved. Even hungry, sitting by a well in the heat of the day when ministering to a Samaritan woman, Jesus is going to say to his disciples after, my food is due to the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Like that's his response to hunger. That's not how I respond to hunger. You know, my food is just to do the will of God. But yet here's Jesus. That's, that's his food. That's his nourishment. Of course he ate. But just here in these moments, even in the wilderness, when he goes 40 days without eating, his food was to do the will of him who sent him. John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Again, his whole world, Jesus' whole world is rotating around the father and the father's will. Luke twenty two forty two. Father, if you're willing, this is in the garden of Gethsemane, remove this cup from me. Three times he's going to ask the father, I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath. I don't want to have to absorb this, go through this. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So under the worst weight of possible agony and suffering any human could ever know, about to drink the wrath of God and feeling it bodily, feeling it relationally. And yet his response is, but not my will be done. Your will be done. And what was the father's will? It was to crush him. But then he was raised. So yeah, we can keep going. We're about out of time. But just how then the gospel is not about, firstly, just fixing all those myriad of things outside, but the inside. And that's what ultimately we want to offer to Amanda or Matthew or to our own souls in those times is more gospel. The details of Jesus' life and death and resurrection that can actually help reorient them around God, hear and understand God in a new way, interpret their childhood, their relationships, their experiences in a whole new way, be filled with a whole new kind of content that expresses itself in a new way, and then helping them realize that's not an overnight fix. That's not okay, by by Monday it'll be okay. No, it's okay, this is a new trajectory, a new road the Lord's putting you on for the rest of your life, where you're being conformed to the image of his son. I think implications, number one, just honesty about ourselves. I think that's one thing this can do. Just everything that comes out of us is us. All our attitudes, all our passions, all our thoughts, all our emotions, all of our desires, all of our behaviors, all of our ways of relating to God and others, while they're being influenced by numerous factors, they'll always be explained by, okay, what is the ruling orientation of my heart? And that doesn't mean that when all the junk comes out of you, you're just meant to be guilty, ashamed, condemned. No, you're meant to step back and go, okay, this is helpful information. God is using this trial to show me what's in me that I didn't see that was in me. This is how my faith is being tested, exposed, so that I can be honest about what's really inside. 
honest about what I really need. Because again, our reflex is blame. If you didn't do that, I wouldn't have gotten so angry and said what I said. Rather than, okay, the Lord appointed that for that to be said, to show me what's really in me when I came out. And, and that's why trials are helpful. That's why God brought Israel into the wilderness, Deuteronomy 8. He said, I, I, I let you be hungry to see what was in your heart, whether you'd keep my commandments or not. And again, that's not to condemn, but that's to show us where our need really is. Honesty about ourselves. I think humility toward others. That when it comes down to heart nature, heart content, heart orientation, no Christians are really more impressive than others, really from God's point of view. Perhaps some are more mature, farther down the road of sanctification. But perhaps the Lord gives stronger sort of raw intellectual material, raw intellectual capacity, more self-discipline. But nobody depends more on the grace of God than others to be changed and transformed. I've used the illustration where it's like all of us lining up on the shore of South Carolina and we're, and we're all, the goal is we have to jump to Portugal. And so we all sort of take about 30 paces back from the, the ocean. We all run as fast as we can and then jump from the beach to get to Portugal. And what you'll find is some will jump further than others, right? Some didn't even make it to the water. They, are, they just hit face first in the sand. They tripped over themselves. Others, okay, they get to the water and then like trip on something else and just face first into the salt water. Others jump. Some may land two feet out, some four feet. Some may even make it six feet. And can the people who land six feet turn around and go, man, I smoked y'all. You're still about 3,000 miles short of Portugal, give or take two feet. <laughs> and that's how the Bible sort of talks about us, that everybody's got different raw material to work with, different backgrounds they come in with, different experiences, different shaping influences, different trials, different burdens, different dispositions, all for God's purposes and in God's way, but all dependent on grace, on mercy on God doing stuff on the inside to change us. And some may be further down the road than others. They've practiced the jump to Portugal more than others, but, or just God has, yeah, been working on them longer than others. But we're not ever supposed to look around us and sort of compare how much better, because it's all grace. Even Paul's gonna say, right, that, that he worked harder than all the other disciples. Remember that when he says to the apostles, yeah, I worked harder than all of them. But then what does he say after that? but not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So in other words, there's a place to say, yeah, Paul did more. Paul covered more ground, planted more churches, did more, but then Paul's gonna say, but it wasn't me, it was the grace of God in me. So it doesn't mean we just flatten everything and just say everybody's the same. Same gifting, same whatever. It's just we realize that whatever good comes, it's always grace. I think desperation for God is a final one, that if we really do need a new heart nature, new heart content, new heart orientation, then our desperation for God should be constant. Every day, every hour, every minute, because we realize the thing that we most need, we can't pull off. Like, Lord, it, it has to be your grace in me. It has to be Christ in me.
Any final questions or comments or thoughts before we pray? By the way, you'll see some discussion questions there on your handouts. Those really aren't for us to discuss in here. I should have explained this before. These are for y'all to discuss over lunch, to discuss this afternoon, to discuss if you want to, if your life group gets together, to discuss this week and sort of discipleship meetings or over lunches. That's what those discussion questions are for, not for us to cover here, but for you to take with you and to have as discussion whenever you will. But We have time, yeah, one question, one comment before we wrap up. Yes. Yeah, the comment is just in reflecting on the temptations of Jesus, Jesus in the wilderness. It was that yeah, he was fully, he was tempted full, as a full, fully man, fully God. And it's tempting for us to go, well, he was the son of God. He, you know, he just had something that none of us have, which is true, but that that's why he was able to resist. As opposed to the comment is, but he's the resources he's depending on, the spirit of God, the word of God, to actually interact with those, that temptation, and to resist that temptation are the same resources that we're given. And that's absolutely right. That we're not Christ, but we're united to Christ. We're not the Spirit, but the Spirit dwells in us. We have the Word of God, and so in many ways we are equipped, in many ways, to resist temptation as he did. Yeah, it's helpful. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do thank you for your great love with which you've loved us in Christ, for yeah, forgiving us in Christ, for redeeming us in Christ, for adopting us through Christ to be your children forever, for giving us new hearts, a new orientation. And we pray that yeah, you would remind us of these things hour by hour, that you would help us to abide in Christ, help us to abide in your word, help us to trust and to believe in all that you're doing in us and through us, to be humble about our sin, to be repentant of our sin, to, to rejoice in the glory in the cross, the place where our sins we're settled and paid for and washed away. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.